Departures. My father accompanied me to Berlin to help me settle in. Eddie moved out from the family he'd been boarding with, and together we moved into a kosher hotel on the Kulfjulstendam. By then, Eddie knew his way around the city, so I was quickly oriented as well. Berlin was overwhelming, but at the same time, the anonymity of the big city was a relief in its own way. I began studying at the Adith Israel Gymnasium in April 1937. I found the standards very high, and it took me weeks of strenuous effort before I caught up to the other students. They were better trained than I was in the basics. At the school in Gelsenkirchen, I had been easily the best student. The school in Berlin, however, admitted only top students from all over Germany. Many of the teachers, moreover, had taught in German universities but had recently been forced out. They were far more scholarly than the high school teachers in Gelsenkirchen. The school comprised a few hundred boys, with 35 or 40 to a classroom. I was the only Unterprima, the next to final class. It was a stimulating environment and an exacting one. Some boys in my class were preparing to write the Cambridge English exam, which could be written in Germany even then. If they achieved high scores, they had a chance to gain admission to Cambridge or Oxford. I knew several students from the gymnasium who accomplished this. In due course, my father suggested to me, why don't you take the exam? Maybe you could study in England. My parents were always proud of my scholastic ability and had lofty aspirations for me. I began, with direction from my teachers, to drill myself to write the Cambridge exam. For social life in Berlin, Eddie and I joined a Zionist group, a youth branch of the Mizrahi organization called Brit Hanoar, to which we had already belonged at home. An active unit flourished in Gelsenkirchen, and I had been the secretary and had met touring national leaders there. Since the leaders we had met there were mainly from Berlin, Eddie and I resumed acquaintance with them now. Some of these youthful Zionists became prominent in Israel later on. Many founded kibbutzim, and some served in the government. I remember Yosef Berg of Leipzig, who became a longtime cabinet minister in Israel and was a vigorous Zionist organizer when I was in Berlin. Another person I remember who attended Adath Israel Gymnasium concurrently with me was Walter Wulzburger, who hailed from Munich. He went on to become one of the most distinguished Orthodox rabbis in North America. Among the students at the gymnasium, the major issue concerning us was passing our exams. I'd been more concerned with the state of Germany while in Gelsenkirchen and Wattenscheid than I was in Berlin. The population was diverse and cosmopolitan, and there were many Jews. Eddie and I felt safer than we had in a small town, where we could be pointed out as one of the only Jews. In Berlin, I concentrated on passing the next exam and paid little attention to politics. It was an insular life. My parents weren't around me constantly talking about politics with friends and anyone else who dropped by. My brother and I were living among transient strangers, and we spoke about politics with no one. We scarcely read newspapers or listened to the radio because there seemed to be no point, as both newspapers and radio were under complete government control. We became less involved in political events, even though we were closer to so many of them. While we were in Berlin in 1938, our uncle Beryl and his wife and youngest son, whose home was in Oberhausen, not far from Bochum, were expelled to Poland. From there, by a circuitous route, they made their way to Palestine, where the two oldest sons had gone a few years earlier. 
Now, our immediate family was the only one left in Germany. All our close relatives had gone. My father's mother was still in Poland, and his sister, Gusta Schmidt, was in the Netherlands with her family. Everyone else had left Europe. On November 7, 1938, a junior official in the German embassy in Paris, whose name was Ernst vom Rath, was shot. His assailant was a teenage Jewish boy. In retaliation for this assassination, the Nazis proceeded to destroy Jewish property and levy taxes on German Jews. Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, started on the ninth day of November. That night, and into the following night, squads of Nazis invaded Jewish neighborhoods. They smashed windows. They looted and set fire to Jewish homes, factories, stores, and synagogues. These depredations struck many small towns, as well as Berlin. In small towns, all the Jewish real estate was targeted and blighted. But Berlin was a huge metropolis, and so it was possible to not see Nazis' violence and destruction. Eddie and I still lived on Kulfjulstendam, which was, and still is, one of the main avenues. It was a mixed area, not especially Jewish. Our district was undisturbed, so my brother and I were unaware of what was happening around Germany. We got up to go to school on the morning of November 10th, 1938, as we did any other day. Suddenly, the telephone rang with a call from our mother. The time was 7 o'clock. She blurted out that my father had just been arrested again. She was alone and didn't know what to do. I was so shocked at the news of my father that I didn't even remember if she mentioned what had happened to the store. She told us to come home immediately, even though Eddie and I might have been safer in Berlin. After her call, we hurried home by express train. We arrived in Wattenscheid, reached our gutted store, greeted our haggard mother, and sat down to drink tea in the kitchen. The police turned up soon after and arrested Eddie and me right there. We were flung into the jail in Wattenscheid. That night, we were transferred to Elm, about 20 kilometers away. Our Aunt Rosa, my father's sister, had lived in Elm, with her husband and children until they left Germany in the early 1930s. We were detained in the jail in Elm along with other Jewish boys. One was Walter Nussbaum, whose home, like ours, was in a nearby town. We got to know him quickly in those unusual circumstances. Many years later, my brother would find him again in Israel, and he still maintained his sense of humor. Once, he said to my grandson, who was on a visit to Israel, You know where I met your grandfather? In jail. Locked up in Elm, I kept wondering where my father was. Then, a talkative police officer revealed that we were supposed to be shipped to the Sachsenhausen concentration camp, but the camp was full. He said, you're lucky, you guys. You're sitting here in Elm, not in Sachsenhausen like the others, the ones ahead of you. My father had been seized ahead of us, so I surmised he was in that concentration camp located near Berlin. The Nazis were still somewhat deterred by the effects of overcrowding. Years later, overcrowding in the camp wouldn't have entered into their considerations. After two weeks, my brother was released because he was only 15. I was held for four weeks because I was already 16 and regarded as grown up. I suppose they were hoping to find room for me in a camp with adults. My mother had been unrelenting in finding a way to free me. She'd even managed to obtain an exit visa for me to leave the country on a kinder transport. Several countries, such as the Netherlands, England, and Denmark, agreed to accept a fixed number of Jewish children from Germany. 
Thanks to my mother's efforts, I was scheduled to be part of one of those transports. Unluckily, I was slated for the Netherlands instead of England, which would have been much safer. The last day I was in Wattenscheid, my father returned home. I learned then that he had indeed been in Sachsenhausen, one of the worst concentration camps in that period. He looked weak. He had been ill and hadn't yet recovered. He had called me aside and said to me, You're leaving today, and I may never see you again. I want to tell you something. Pausing. I'm not supposed to tell you this, he confided. I had to swear I wouldn't mention it to anyone. If it's discovered that I've spoken about this, I may be arrested again, but I'll tell you anyway. He went on. When I got to Sachsenhausen, the first thing I had to do was stand in line with other men for 24 hours. We weren't allowed to go to the toilet. If any of us became unsteady or fell, no one helped him. Anyone who fainted was shot on the spot and carted away. My father had been in the army. He had endured severe conditions in the war. He continued, There weren't many of us who stood still for that long. Those who did were assigned to barracks and put to work. We had to move heavy rocks all day. We loaded them onto wheelbarrows, pushed them from one place to another, and dumped them out. Then we had to reload the wheelbarrows and move the rocks back. Meaningless work. All day long, every day. The guards hit us, beat us, and gave us very little to eat. It was inhuman. Many people died. My father was a strong, robust man, but he fell sick in Sachsenhausen and was put in the camp hospital. After four weeks in the camp, he and others arrested on Kristallnacht were released. Maybe the Nazis freed some individuals to warn Jews to leave Germany, to drive Jews away so there would be no need to deal with us further. My father was lucky to be free, but he reasoned that they wouldn't let him go the next time. He had opened my eyes to the terror of Sachsenhausen. Remember, he drummed into my ears. Whatever you do, Never enter a concentration camp. Never put your foot in a concentration camp. He gave me this extraordinary message, the most important instruction I ever received. He directed me to do everything I could to stay out of a concentration camp. Because once you're there, he warned, you'll never get out. It's torture. He made clear to me what the Nazis were doing in the camps. They debased and weakened people, abuse, Starvation and excessive labor were just some of the ways the Nazis were murdering the Jewish people. With that message, my father told me all I needed to know about the concentration camps. Until then, I hadn't realized what these places were really like. We had heard about Dachau. We knew that some Jews and Roma and nonconformists were in prison there, but arrests had been on a relatively small scale. Suddenly, we were all candidates for the camps. The Nazis' camps took on a whole new meaning. My father galvanized me with his warning in December 1938. It was the last time I saw my father and the last day I saw my mother and my youngest brother, Benno. I never forgot my father's message. I never allowed myself to be deluded. His words were always uppermost in my mind throughout the horror of the coming years. My father was too spent to see me off but my mother and brothers escorted me to the station in Gelsenkirchen. There, I boarded the train that took me across the frontier into the Netherlands. All I had was the small suitcase we were allowed to bring, along with ten Reichsmarks, which was all the currency we were allowed to take out of Germany. My mother had supplemented this with a piece of jewelry 
a fine gold chain set with a jewel which I hid deep in my jacket. That was all I took with me. Some clothing, ten reismachs, and a bracelet. The train was the ordinary one that ran between Gelsenkirchen and the Dutch border. Jewish children occupied several rail cars. The Gestapo officers who climbed aboard to check our papers, even though each of us had a special visa, were rough and insulting to us. My train went only as far as the Netherlands. Other trains carried children to England and elsewhere. It was just by chance that some children went here, others there. Little forethought determined the destinations. Faced with the choice of letting me rot in jail or bailing me out with a guarantee that I would leave Germany, my mother had snatched at the first refuge offered, and that was to send me to the Netherlands. In the evening, I crossed into the Netherlands at Wintersveek, but at the border, I was interned immediately as an enemy alien. I had been a prisoner in Germany, and no sooner did I touch ground in the Netherlands that I was imprisoned again. It wasn't as bad as the German jail, but it wasn't the warm welcome I had hoped for, either. The institutions involved with refugee children were the Dutch government, local churches, and Jewish organizations. The first thing the Dutch authorities did was load us on a bus. We were driven to a village called De Stage, near Ardenham, and not far from the German border. There, we were taken to a building that housed children in the summer, which was empty in the winter. The location was pastoral and pleasant, overlooking the Eisel River, tributary of the Rhine. However, the beds in the dormitory were small. They were designed for young children, but we were adolescents. The Dutch had expected a transport of little children. They weren't prepared for us and had to make use of whatever quarters they had. They were now undecided about what to do with us. I was in De Stage for a couple of weeks before being shifted to naval quarantine barracks in Rotterdam. I was interned there like a criminal. I was feeling lonely and unwanted, so I wrote to my Aunt Gusta, my father's sister who lived in Maastricht, and she came by train to visit me. It took her the entire day to get to Rotterdam and then to the barracks where I was being kept. She brought a large basket of fruit and chocolates and talked with me for a while. She described the red tape she'd encountered at the gate of the naval installation before she was allowed to see me. But I was so glad she'd persisted. That little bit of family warmth meant a lot. From Rotterdam, I was transferred again, this time to a youth hostel near the city of Deventer. It was still winter, and the hostel, a recently constructed building, was only occupied in summer. Its facilities were just right for us, but we couldn't stay there long. With summer approaching, youth hostelers were expected, and we would have to move again. We were given no regular schooling and had to find ways to pass the time. I had lost the opportunity to write the Cambridge exam, but I tried to continue learning something, anything. I studied Italian and a few other things on my own. Classes started, but they weren't well organized. We lacked essential texts, and we were never in one place long enough to make any headway. I now needed to always wear my eyeglasses, maybe because of the stress I was under, though I hardly let myself acknowledge those feelings. Occasionally, we had visits from Jews who lived in Deventer. One was a man who traveled on business to Maastricht, which was about 200 kilometers away. He offered to take me with him so I could visit my aunt. I was given permission to go with him twice. The route we followed paralleled the Dutch-German border and Dutch police 
who appeared to be on high alert, stopped us several times to check our papers. In Maastricht, the man left me with my relatives for a few hours while he attended to business. We would return to Deventer that same night. These excursions were a blessed change from the monotony of internment. I tried to learn to garden in the spring in Deventer. I was bursting to learn something or do something. There was a trade school in the town, and after repeated attempts, I succeeded in getting my name on the list to learn plumbing, which seemed to be a useful skill. Before I could start apprenticing, I was moved again. We were taken to an abandoned orphanage in Gouda, the city famous for its cheese. The orphanage was an antiquated building in the center of the city, dilapidated and dirty. It was a thoroughly unsanitary place. In the dormitories, the beds were set close together, and outdoors we were packed into a small courtyard. Once again, we had nothing to fill our time. Diphtheria flared among us. Some became very sick, and all of us were infected. I never developed the disease, but I became a carrier. We were tested for diphtheria regularly, and anyone who tested positive was confined to hospital. I was eventually placed in quarantine in the hospital in Gouda. I wanted to conceal the worry about this disease for my parents, so in my letters to them, I pretended none of this was happening. In that period, however, each letter from a contagious disease ward was fumigated and the edges of the envelopes were cut off. I wondered if my parents realized the situation I was in. In 1939, my parents struggled to find a way to leave Germany through official channels. By then, Jews were forbidden to withdraw money from the country, so my father shipped a room-sized container full of valuable precision tools and small machinery addressed to relatives in Palestine thinking he and my mother and my brother Benno might follow. The shipment reached Italy and went no further. There it went astray. The British aggravated the critical situation by blocking entry into Palestine. But no other country would accept Jews, so of course people thought more and more about getting to Palestine. My Aunt Gusta tried to pluck my family out of Germany in 1939 by sending a car with a Dutch driver to pick them up but my father insisted on having authorization to leave. Stubbornly, he cited his German citizenship and military service. He refused to sneak away from Germany. Maybe he could no longer see things for the way they really were after the experience in the concentration camp. Maybe his mind could no longer take in what was happening. Or maybe he simply gave up, lost his gusto. I phoned them sometimes, and they could phone me. The short distance between us made this possible. I still had some hope, though it was slowly diminishing. There was no way they could legally leave Germany now. In May 1939, my brother Eddie went to England on a kinder transport, and Benno could have gone with him, but my mother wouldn't let Benno go. I'll be alone, she wrote. There'll be no one at home. I can't let all three of you go. She seemed so bereft that Benno told her he didn't want to go. My poor mother. In September 1939, the war broke out when Germany invaded Poland. I was still in quarantine in the hospital in Gouda. A nurse who showed compassion for us said to me one morning, war broke out today, and then brought me a newspaper. Shortly after that, I received a letter from my parents. They told me they had moved from Wattenscheid to Dortmund. I learned that the Jews in Wattenscheid had first been forced to move into the town's Gemeindehaus, where they had stayed until they were taken to Dortmund. The move disturbed me and filled me with dread. I told the nurse, this is the last time I'll ever hear from them. This is the end. 
She tried nonetheless to console me. Don't say that. You never know, she said. But I was very close to correct. Much later on, I learned that after Eddie and I had left home, Nazis would loiter outside our stores. They badgered the schlocks with remarks like, Did the Jews rake in money today? And to blow up the stores, they harassed Edwig and called her Jew wife because of her friendship with Jews. Then one day, trucks drove up and Nazis removed all the goods from our stores. My parents and Benno were ordered to live in a small room behind the Schlock's apartment. They were forbidden to work from then on. Someone was appointed by the Nazis to administer our property. So much of the whole Nazi fabrication came down to property. It always did. Later that year, because I was only a carrier of diphtheria and wasn't sick, the Dutch officials decided it was too expensive to keep me in hospital. I was transferred to the harbor area of Amsterdam to a quarantine station normally used by seamen. The barracks and huts were very old. I stayed there in isolation for a couple months with nothing to do. Having been a member of Breit Hanoar, I established contact with the group in Amsterdam. Members of the organization came to all the detention centers looking for volunteers to prepare to go to Palestine. The group operated two kibbutzim in the Netherlands, one near Amsterdam and one in the northern province of Friesland. I volunteered to join one of these, to go on Hakshara, preparation and training for collective farm life. I was accepted into the Hakshara in Fronekara, a tiny city to the north, but first I had to be cleared of diphtheria germs. There was no penicillin or other antibiotics at that time. My own body had to destroy the infection. I was kept with other infected people, so even if I overcame the disease, I could be reinfected. My body eventually developed some immunity. I had to sign a plethora of documents, but I was finally granted temporary residence and a work permit. This meant I was being released from custody, and in December 1939, I was suddenly a free person, exactly a year after I had left Germany. I had spent a whole year in the Netherlands doing absolutely nothing except contracting a contagion due to poor conditions, the overcrowding, inadequate food, and substandard housing. I still had a German passport with a swastika on the cover and a large J for Jude, Jew, stamped inside. But I now had Dutch resident status. I was accepted. I was legal. I could walk in the open air. I could breathe. I had nothing but my papers yet I felt wonderful. I had now joined the Hakshara in Fronekar, about 20 kilometers west of Leovarden, the capital city of Friesland, and a short way from Harlingen. This was an isolated region of the Netherlands, with its own marked dialect and its own distinctive character. The land is very flat and close to the sea, a windy, lonely landscape. Friesland is rich farming country with excellent farmers. These hard-working farmers were grim and taciturn, barely speaking under any circumstances. One of the few remarks they made to me regularly was a proverb on the weather. It went, Morgenrot, brengt water in the slot. The proverb says that if the sky is red in the morning, it's going to rain. There will be water in the ditch. Conditions were difficult for the Frisian farmers. They rose at four in the morning and worked steadily until six in the evening laboring almost without pause. It was quite the preparation for a city boy like me. We were a group of about 25 young people, 15 boys and 10 girls. 
Most of the girls worked in the houses, though a few were apprentice gardeners learning from a horticulturalist. The boys worked on farms. The leaders of our organization demanded that we train hard, grow tough, and learn to be skilled farmers from the Frisians. We all lived together in a former train station in Froniker. The tracks had been removed, and so the place had been vacant until our arrival. Our organization adapted the building for our use. The ticket office became the kitchen, and the waiting room, a boy's dormitory, while the girls slept in a room upstairs. We each had our essential bicycle, which we stored in a shed beside the house. At 3.30 in the morning each day, we sallied forth on our bicycles. We were required to be on the farms by 4 o'clock, when the farmers began milking. There was a main road with bicycle paths, as there are all over the Netherlands to this day, where I could pedal safely. However, to get to my destination, I had to turn off this path and struggle for 5 to 10 kilometers along narrow, rutted back roads flanked by wide ditches. In that part of Europe, farm buildings are placed far out in the fields. It often snowed, and back roads in particular weren't cleared of snow early in the morning. I couldn't tell where the road was under the snow and where the ditch started. I landed in an icy ditch almost every day. Country life was completely new to me. The closest I had ever come was my idyllic childhood summer in Galicia, in Poland. It was especially difficult because I had just emerged from quarantine, having done nothing for a whole year, and I'd never before had to work physically hard. In Germany, I had just been a student, chiefly of language and classics, growing up in one of the most technically advanced regions of Europe and in the cosmopolitan city of Berlin. Suddenly, I had been thrown into a grind of hard physical labor with people who seldom talked to me. When they did speak, I couldn't understand what they were saying since they spoke Frisian and I only knew some Dutch. Over the previous year, as I was interned, I had learned a little of the language, since it was the one thing I could learn there. But these Frisians spoke their own dialect, which was very different from standard Dutch. They had no respect for me, and always called me Jot, Jew, never using my name. They were very narrow-minded people who weren't at all accustomed to strangers. They even disliked other Dutch people, and we were Jews, urban Jews. They didn't know what to make of us. They seemed to think we were demons or some other weird creatures. They accepted our presence because we worked for them for a pittance. They had dirt-cheap labor, and we had our training. It was difficult to gain the Frisians' confidence, but once we did, they became somewhat friendlier toward us. They were not really willing to teach us much, though this varied with each farmer. Some were more patient than others. The one I worked with first was a youngish man. I wasn't the strongest fellow around, and he continually discouraged me. You'll never learn how to milk, he droned. You'll never become a farmer. You'll never learn it. You're wasting your time. I was unhappy and asked myself, what am I doing here? I'll never be a farmer. I'm working my heart out for nothing. I hated my difficult early morning travels, tumbling into a ditch every time. The whole endeavor was ridiculous, and I was sorry I had undertaken the training. But I had no alternative, since if I had quit, I would have been interned again. I was only set free to work on the Hakshara. We were expected to spend about a year on one farm before being allowed to rotate to a new farm. We had to establish our tenacity. Many Jews at that time believed that persistence alone proved a person's value. An ideological glorification of labor had affected us. 
Zionist groups exalted manual labor, reversing the centuries-old trend of Jews as merchants and scholars. I was lucky to have a few warm-hearted friends. One of them was a rabbi, Yehoshua Wolf. He had been a rabbi in Berlin, and I remembered hearing of him there. I was 18 years old, the youngest on the kibbutz, and Rabbi Wolf must have been about 30. He gave shiurim, or lessons, and I was a very good student. He liked me because I was the most intellectual in the group. Yehoshua Wolf was a man with two left hands. He couldn't do any of the manual work, even passably well, so he spent his time studying. As a result, he was ridiculed by some of our members, but I respected him. To me, he was a learned man with a great reservoir of knowledge. Another close friend on the kibbutz was Aaron Rat, who was also from Berlin. He'd attended the university there, but he was also skilled at manual work. He told me often to just keep at it, stick to it, and I'd be a farmer as well as a scholar. Every day, Rat said, I'm going to measure your shoulders now. And then he'd take out this measuring tape and stretch it across my back. You see? He'd exult. Your shoulders are already broader than they were yesterday. You get stronger when you work. What he said was true. Every day you get stronger. I saw it myself, he'd say as he displayed his muscles. He always made me feel better. Work, work. Don't take any notice of what the farmer says. He'd clown and play little tricks to encourage me and cheer me up. A shortage of nutritious food was a serious problem on the kibbutz. We ate only kosher meat and received provisions from Amsterdam every week. However, we never had enough to satisfy the appetites of young people employed in heavy labor, and I was hungry much of the time. But no doubt about it, I was getting tougher. Things were actually starting to look up a bit. The Hakshara had existed for several years before we joined it and included both refugees and Dutch citizens when I was there. Since half the members were Dutch, it wasn't like a refugee camp. A number of individuals had already gone to Palestine from the Hakshara and some members had already been training for a year or more by the time I joined. The Dutch Jews were much more at ease than the rest of us. They understood the language and could pick up the dialect well. They felt at home. They often helped us out, speaking to the farmers on our behalf. I encountered my distant cousin Moishe Heller in Froniker. Like Rabbi Wolf, he was 10 or 12 years my senior. The Hellers had lived in Hanover, in Germany. I knew of them from my parents, but I'd never met any of them. When I discovered that Moishe Heller was related to my mother, he took some interest in me. He too encouraged me and helped me to persevere. You know, it's tough for all of us, he said. He had been in Froniker for some time and was considerably fitter than I was. He had already switched to his second farmer, one more likable than mine. They were mainly dairy farmers in Friesland. On the first farm where I worked, my principal job was milking cows. Milking may look easy, but it's not, believe me. I had to learn the proper technique and develop the right muscles, but I finally got it despite my complaints. The prospect of simply reaching the farm each day was discouraging, nevertheless. The farm was so far from where we lived, and pedaling there in the winter conditions continued to be a battle against wind and snow. After milking the cows at four in the morning, I would feed the animals and clean the stable. I then prepared more fodder and attended to other chores. In the early afternoon, I repeated the same routine of milking, feeding, and cleaning. In warmer weather, in between the stable chores, I worked in the fields, haying or spraying manure. I was busy until six in the evening with only one or two hours of rest during the day. I was relegated to the stable and never entered the farmer's house. 
A typical Frisian farmhouse was very large. The small front part, which had a tiled roof, was the farmer's house. The large back section had a thatched roof and contained a barn and a high hayloft. I was strictly a farmhand and never even saw the kitchen or the inside of the house. Even the other farmhands were contemptuous of me at first because they couldn't figure out who or what I was, though after a while some of us became friendly with each other. The farmers, however, never invited me into their homes. I never got anything from them, not even a kind word. Each day I brought my own bread and my own thermos. I was paid four guilders, about two dollars, a week. It was a rough life, but at least it was a peaceful one.